Let's go to God's word, Revelation. Revelation chapter 19. One member said Daniel hadn't finished his series on Ecclesiastes. Another one said, I forget what series you're preaching on. (laughs) Revelation 19, begin in verse 11. We're going to finish the chapter, Lord willing, today. Chapter began some time ago, I think a month ago, we studied the first part of Revelation 19, and it was uh, heaven's exaltation over the fall of Babylon and the wedding feast of the Lamb when Christ appears as the great, great bridegroom and his church is his bride. And we continue in Revelation 19, verse 11. 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Thus far the reading of God's word this morning. Before we begin our sermon, just one note. I did print off uh, sermon helps for those who have uh, or English as a second language, but unfortunately I left them on my printer at home. When we realized the mistake, I tried to print off new ones uh, from the computer here, and we had troubles, uh, so we have no uh, ESL uh, sermon helps today in print. If you got them on your phone or an email, hopefully it can still be a benefit, uh, but I apologize for that. So we begin, beloved, and we study Revelation 19 today, and it's certainly a change uh, from the wedding feast of Revelation 19, 1 to 10, to the war of Revelation 19 verse 11 and following. A wedding feast to a battle. A honeymoon to heaven's door being opened and seeing Christ upon a white horse uh, with blood upon his robes. And he comes to tread the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God. These are not two images we would normally put together. These are not two scenes we might like that close together. In the book of Deuteronomy, there's a verse that says that if a man has recently married, he is free from military service for a period of one year that he may care for his wife. If you want to get a wedding card that's Christian, sometimes they'll have a joke like that on there, and they'll quote the verse and then say when you open the card up, I'll tell your boss. One week of free service just to care for your wife. But there's an idea, even biblically, that wouldn't see military service alongside a wedding. 
that would see the incongruence of a celebration alongside a battle. And yet, and yet this very same word puts these two things side by side as we recognize that the victory of Christ and the reception of his bride and the finalization of his work to make those who trust in him holy, to bring them to himself, is combined with his destruction of his enemies. That even as he brings his, his people home, he destroys Satan. And he destroys the powers of darkness. That his people would not be hindered again. There are in the history of the world many uh, stories of great battles. I don't know if you enjoy uh, reading them and, and considering them. Wars are horrible things. And yet sometimes in the midst of war there are acts of great bravery and courage and sacrifice and love. But there is no greater war and there is no greater story of sacrifice and bravery and love than the story of Jesus Christ who gives himself for his church who faces the enemy in a way that we could never do that we might be set free and this vision of this warfare this vision of this battle this vision of this deliverance is not a picture if you have been studying with us the book of Revelation for a while you may remember that we often say the book of Revelation spans the time from Christ's ascension into heaven after he died and rose again all the way to his second coming. And yet when we get to this portion of the book, it is no longer speaking of the entire history. This is not a repeated thing. This is now the, the final battle. The sermon title includes the word Armageddon, that time when all the, the kings of the world are, are led under the deception of the beast and the deception of the false prophet to attack Christ and his followers. And in this final battle, Christ shows himself king. We are given this vision now. We are given this picture now. So that wherever we are in our Christian journey, wherever the church has been throughout the 2,000 years thus far, waiting for the coming of Christ, she may know that no matter how strong the battle may be, no matter how great the enemy may appear, no matter how tough it might seem to overcome their sin, no matter how difficult it might be to press on when, when the world is persecuting for your faith in Christ, they're given this vision in the midst of whatever struggles they face that they might know Christ is the King. And though many may claim authority and many may claim power and many may threaten and many may tempt, God alone is worthy and Christ is indeed the victor. I want to be looking at that this morning as we study God's word. I want to pray that God will use this to spur us on, to increase our hope, our faith, our courage. We are not yet out of the battle. We are not in the day when Christ reigns supreme and we, we see him with the Lord of lords and the King of kings written across his thigh. We are not yet at the point when the beast is judged and, and, and the false prophet is silenced. We're still in the time when these creatures, when these powers, when these satanic beings attack. And yet we are called to see today that, that because of the victory of our Savior, we need not fear, we need not grow weary, 
We need not stop in the midst of the fight. If we have, we are to pick up our sword again. If we have grown weary, we are to find fresh courage because our king is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We'll see this in two points this morning, perhaps with a few practical things mentioned at the end. First, we'll see the victor, and second, we'll see the victory. Uh, First, we'll see the victor, second, the victory, and then we'll have a few practical notes perhaps just at the end. As we begin, we're going to look at a a couple passages that help to uh, bring some things together. And it's actually, uh, there's many passages that have a a background of what we read today. We won't have time to look at them all. But what we want to look at that you can kind of put a bookmark in is 2 Thessalonians. So let's just turn to 2 Thessalonians. I'm just going to put a little bit of a bookmark in there because uh, we'll notice some, some neat parallels uh, from there. Second Thessalonians deals with the coming of Christ and is written to speak about his battle uh, with what is called the, the lawless one, which we believe is just another way of speaking of the Antichrist, the demonic powers that Jesus faces. We're going to begin with Second Thessalonians chapter 1 and just look at verse 7 to 10. Because as we look at this section of scripture, we see something that can be a little challenging. Uh, when we think of Christ and we consider who Jesus is, we, we rightfully and often think of him as a shepherd, right? Uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, I have been gone a little while, if you've, our members here, um, and one of the weeks I was gone was for a class in the United States where I got to study under uh, um, Pastor Dane Ortland. He wrote the book Gentle and Lowly. Uh, He also wrote the book Deeper. Uh, These are beautiful books that speak of Christ, according to Matthew 11, verse 28, in his character as a gentle and lowly Savior who calls all to come to him. And, And as we consider the picture of Revelation 19, we might struggle because we think of Jesus as merciful. We think of him as as gentle, as kind, as humble, and he is all these things. He is willing to save the worst of sinners. He is willing to give himself on the cross for people would hate and despise him and then receive them with grace simply because they repent, acknowledge their wrongdoings and ask for mercy. He is gentle and lowly and a shepherd and mighty to save. But he is also the king of kings. And he is also a consuming fire. And these two pictures are not opposites. They work together. We see that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Look with me to verse 7. It's speaking of God repaying those who trouble you in verse 6. And giving to you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. The first picture Paul gives here is of how when Christ comes, he will give those who look to Jesus rest. But then notice verse 8. Right away, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe. The Bible puts side by side, without apology, the reality of Jesus coming as a judge who will punish, and as a Savior who is beloved and loved by all those who look to him in faith. 
And that's what we see in Revelation 19. We see this aspect of Jesus, one who comes as a judge. We begin in verse 11. Heaven is opened. He sees a white horse that is a symbol of a victorious conqueror. He who sat on this horse is called uh, faithful and true. Uh, when we think of the picture of Christ, the first thing, there's kind of four designations of Jesus in this passage. He is called by four titles, uh, faithful and true, then a name we don't get to hear, uh, then the word of God, and then king of kings and lord of lords. Those are his four kind of titles in this passage. The first one is faithful and true. And when Christ appears, what's interesting is as he appears, even as a conqueror, no longer perhaps, uh, maybe a little bit of fear in this one, right? He comes, and we remember other passages of Revelation where when Jesus appears, the people will cry to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us, hide us from the wrath of him who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. That was one of the quotes from Revelation we studied already. This is a fearful thing, but even as Christ appears as the judge, he is described as faithful and true. And this is to remove any fear from his people. This is to remove any fear from those who trust in him. You see, all through the book of Revelation, Jesus has been speaking to his church. He has told them that a time is coming when, when Satan will, will put some of them in prison and some of them will even die. And then Jesus says to the church who's suffering, Smyrna, he says, be faithful unto death and you will receive the crown of life. He tells the church they're going to suffer for Christ. He tells the church some of them will even die for Jesus. And then he says, but in the midst of the suffering, be faithful and you will receive the crown of life. All through the scriptures, he gives promises. He tells us that if we are going to follow Christ, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus. But the one who is willing to lose his or her life will find it. And the one who is willing to turn their backs on the things of this world will receive a, a, a blessing a thousand times more in the world to come. And when Christ appears in glory to judge the living and the dead at the end of time, beloved, he is defined as faithful and true. The promises he made will not be broken the gospel love he extended will not prove false. Those who turn to him, those who confess their sin, those who acknowledge just how broken they are and all the failures of their heart and, and say, Lord, I have no hope. I don't know what to do. I just need Jesus. Will you allow him to save me? They will not be disappointed. When he appears as a warrior, he will not forget his lambs. When he appears as a king, he will not forget the cross. And all the promises of God will not fail to be in him, yes, and in him, amen. He is faithful and he is true. He next is described as in righteousness, judging and making war. Sometimes when there are battles in this world, there's a question of whether or not something is a just war. We have right now a battle happening between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, we have many countries involved in that in a surreptitious way. I read a, a bit of a, a war book on the Korean War during my uh, holidays, and I was startled by how many similarities there were between the Korean War and the Russian-Ukrainian War. Many countries were involved, but never officially. Supposedly, everybody there was a volunteer because they didn't want to escalate things to World War III. 
And so these countries were all fighting in this area, in this battle, and tons of troops were there, and yet no one was officially there, and all, it was a crazy time. And we look at Russia and Ukraine, and we wonder, what's going on? What's the truth? What's happening? Should the Ukrainians go into Russia? Should the Russians go further in Ukraine? What, what's going on? Is it a just war on either side? Where's the truth? Where's the falsehood? Sometimes there can be conflicts in this world that we just don't know enough, and we wonder, is it just war? Is it righteous war? Is it right? And some wars are indeed righteous wars, fighting against evil. But when Christ comes, no one is going to question whether his war is righteous. Christ comes, no one will question whether his war is just. He fights against an enemy who would seek to enslave the souls of men. He fights against a liar who consumes. And he fights to set his people free in righteousness. He judges and makes war. His eyes a flame of fire, seeing all things, perceiving all things. His head has many crowns, similar to what we see later with the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This means he has all authority and power. He has a name written that no one knows except himself. This is the second description of Jesus in this one. Uh, when you read some commentators, there's a few theories put forward on this. Some think it might be the name Yahweh, which is like a, a special holy name for God that the Jews would not uh, pronounce. Uh, some think it's the name Jesus, uh, which, which is the name above every name, according to Philippians chapter 2. But, but I know, uh, I know uh, what it is. It's this. We don't get to know. <laughs> Every commentator says, you know, I think it could be this. I think it could be that. We just say, listen, it's a name given that no one knows except Jesus. That's the end of this point. We're done. We don't know it. The passage goes on to say this. He's clothed the robe dipped in blood. This is uh, not a picture of the blood of the cross. This is Christ coming in vengeance. And this is a picture of the blood of his enemies. a tough one. He is called the Word of God. This is from John chapter 1. It fits back to Genesis chapter 1. You may remember how he's described in the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and the Word became flesh, and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten Son of God. He is the one who makes God known, specifically in this text. He makes God known as a God who keeps his Word, who proclaims and judges righteously according to that Word, he makes known what is true, what is false, and he will judge the living and the dead according to this revelation of who God is. His armies come with him, that is, the church of Christ, the angels of heaven, and he is a warrior with a sharp sword that he will strike the nations, rule them with a rod of iron, tread the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And then finally, the name on his robe and thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords, there is no rule or reign or power greater than Jesus. You may remember as we went through the book of Revelation, the claims of the beast and the claims of the false prophet were that they were supreme, that no one could make war against them, that, that any who didn't follow them would be killed. They claimed absolute authority. But those claims are false and fake there is one King of kings. There is one Lord of lords. It is Christ. Now, we just want to hit this briefly because we don't have a lot of time this morning, unfortunately. 
We need to just kind of open up what this means and its significance for us today. Uh, And there's a lot. There's a lot. Uh, First and foremost, when we live in a world that challenges the truth of God's word, when we live in a world that, that tries to redefine right and wrong, when we live in a world that claims to have authority to take over the raising of children, beloved, there is only one king. The call of the church is to serve him. This applies not only to when the world claims authority, this applies to when our own hearts claim authority. Because the battle of holy living, the battle to live for Christ, is not just against the world, it's against our own sinful natures. When God says, you shall not covet, and we think to ourselves, but I just need a little more. And we take God's commands and God's authority and we fight it because we want to be an authority unto ourselves. We want to go by our own standard and our own way. There's only one king. And every knee must bow. If we are fighting against Christ today, if we are those who maybe have felt the conviction the Spirit has given at times in our life, we have known God is real, we have known God has a plan for our life, God has pressed it upon us, we have come to recognize He is real, and we have fought Him, and we have said no, and said, Lord, I'm not going to serve you yet, I want to live for myself a little longer, beloved in the Lord, be careful, you're fighting against the King, and He does not lose. He is the King of kings and He is the Lord of lords. But secondly, beloved, be encouraged. Uh, He's on our side. I don't know if you've ever uh, been in some kind of competition. Uh, I I find sports always helpful, but I know not everybody likes them. Um, But but maybe you're, you're, uh, oh, we got Pastor Ventura here. We'll pick baseball. I don't know if any of you, uh, when, when Pastor Ventura came onto the church baseball team, we got better, okay? We got better. I remember, I'll switch sports just quickly to soccer. I remember playing high school soccer. I was on the high school soccer team, and we were in the playoffs, and it went to shootouts. And we were one goal down, and I was the next shooter. So if I scored, we stayed in the game. If I missed, I blew it. Our whole team was out. We were done. And I remember walking out towards the opponent's net to get the ball and take my penalty shot. And as I walked out, some of my buddies on the sidelines yelled, it's Bilsma, we got it. I missed. But sometimes you get a player on the team when you say, boy, there they are. Now we're sure to win. I tried to look up Canadian war heroes. I came up with Billy Bishop. If you don't know Billy Bishop, he was born, born in Owen Sound, Ontario. Good things come out of Owen Sound. I married a girl from there. 
But Billy Bishop shot down at least 72 planes in World War I in a time when you were flying prop planes that had to have machine guns timed to shoot between the spinning of the propeller on the front of the plane and, and pilots carried pistols with them in the cockpit so that if another plane got close side by side, they could pull out the gun and shoot them across the way because there weren't any uh, canopies on the planes back then. He shot down, credited with 72 kills, Billy Bishop, Owens Sound, Canadian war hero. You can imagine what it would be like if you were up in the air flying a dogfight and you saw a whole bunch of enemy planes and all of a sudden Billy Bishop flew up beside you. You'd be like, man, we got this. This is Jesus Christ. And he is yours if you stand by faith. Your king, your warrior, your God, you will not lose. He will not forsake his church. He is faithful and he is true. What he promises, he keeps. Don't don't stop fighting because you're discouraged. Don't stop fighting because the devil reminds you of all your sin. Don't stop fighting because you think the world is just too strong. Look unto Christ. Pick up your sword and stand for the Savior. He is with us. Second, let's move on to the victory. The victory, this, this has some, all these things have Old Testament passages. Isaiah 63 is one for the, the, the idea of the wine press. Uh, Ezekiel 39, if you remember the story of a God uh, having a battle against Gog in the land of Magog, that has parallels here, but we won't get into them today. Um, the, the victory comes, and the victory is quite remarkable. You have this angel crying out to all the uh, birds to come and feast upon uh, the enemies who will be destroyed at the coming of Christ. It's a rather uh, grotesque and difficult picture, but it's real. Okay? I want you to read verse 17 and 18. It's, it's a picture. Revelation is a picture book. It's speaking of the end times in, in language that shows great ideas pictorially. But what it demonstrates is real. What it shows is true. So there may not be a time when literally the birds feast upon the flesh of those who oppose Christ. This is a picture of a literal victory where the enemies of Jesus will be so overthrown that they will face an everlasting shame. To not have your body buried in the scriptures and the the cultures of old and even today was a sign of the greatest dishonor you could receive. We honor the dead. We try to respect them. It used to be you couldn't print, uh, show a picture of a dead person in a newspaper. It wasn't allowed because that's a human body and you had to give honor to humans even after death. Those kinds of things have unfortunately gone out the window today. But those who fight Christ, like their destruction is, is horrific. They don't win. And this is real. This means if you're fighting Christ today, and you don't repent, you will be among those destroyed. The birds of Revelation 19 will pick the flesh from your bones. It's Christ or nothing. But the reality of judgment is not just for the unsaved. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul said, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, receive the things done in the body, whether good or bad. And then he says in verse 10, therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. The reality of judgment, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9 and 10, the reality of judgment leads Christians to persuade unbelievers of the gospel. The victory of Christ is real. Hell is real. Eternal damnation for fighting God is real. Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Your neighbors, your co-workers, your family members who don't know Christ aside from repentance and faith will face a God who will destroy them and meet them with an everlasting punishment of body and soul in hell. And the only escape is to come to the one who is not only the Lion of Judah, but also the Lamb of God, who is gentle and lowly and will receive the chief of sinners because his blood on the cross is enough to make them whole. The Bible tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He takes no delight in the death of the wicked, but would rather have them turn that they may live. There is a judgment coming, but beloved, the Lord has sent Christ to save those who might deserve it, who do deserve it. If we believe in the reality of hell, if we believe that Christ is indeed coming to judge the living and the dead, if we believe that those who oppose him have no hope of victory if they do not turn to Christ now, beloved Lord, how can this not lead us to personal repentance, but also to personal prayer and efforts to persuade men and women destined for hell to come to Christ. To see that the lion is also a lamb. The beast is overcome. The destruction of the enemies go in reverse order. Uh, They're introduced and then destroyed in reverse order. The only enemy not destroyed by the end of chapter 19 is Satan himself. Uh, The beast comes with all their kings and their armies and they gather to make war against Christ, but the beast is captured. It's a really remarkable closing. uh, And we're going to close off the sermon uh, very soon. But just, I want you to notice, if you're you're watching and and, and reading a a war story, don't you expect to read about the battle? Right? If if you're looking at a movie and it's, you know, good against evil, uh, right against wrong... And all through the movie, you hear about this conflict, and the final conflict comes. Do you want it over in a heartbeat? You ever seen a good movie like that? You know, the bad guy who's done all the evil for the last hour and a half comes and stands before the good guy, and the good guy pulls out a gun, bang, it's done. Right? Wouldn't that be a little anticlimactic when you see that and say, oh, come on now, we want to see a little bit of a fight? And typically that means the good guy gets a few punches against him, right? The guy's hit a few times, he gets injured, he's wounded. And he digs deep and he overcomes and he fights back and defeats the enemy against all odds. Isn't that the way storybook endings sound? That's not the way this ending goes. You don't read about a battle 
The enemy fights against the lion and his followers, but you never read about his followers fighting. Not this battle. We fight now, make no mistake, but not this battle. And there's no give and take. It's not as if at this point Jesus is hurt or injured or wounded. He comes, he destroys, and he wins. If your Bibles are open, go back to 2 Thessalonians because there's another neat passage there in chapter 2. In chapter 2. Verse 8. Verse 8 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you have your bookmark in it, if you listen, you're, you're there already. But if not, it's okay. Chapter 2, verse 8. And then the lawless one, which is another name for the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth, and destroy with the brightness of his coming. He will just appear, and the war will be over. Anticlimactic? Not really. Not really. You know, all through the Bible, there are stories of how the people of God are overwhelmed and outnumbered. They come to the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army is behind them, Moses cries out to God, and what does God say to Moses? Moses, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. The armies of Jehoshaphat are coming out and they're being outnumbered by three opposing armies, and Jehoshaphat cries out, and and the Lord says, you won't even have to fight. You won't even have to fight. Beloved, it's not even a battle. It's a battle now. When Christ returns, it's not even a question. The redeemed will be set free. And all that belongs to Satan and hell and sin will be destroyed by the brightness of the coming of Christ. If these things cannot stand in the presence of Christ on that day, beloved, they should not stand in the presence of Christ today. This Lord is our God. He dwells with us. He is among us. And the brightness of his coming makes the enemy flee. Let us not be a church or a Christian who thinks that we can hold on to sin and Jesus at the same time. Let us not think that we can go through the motions of religion while treasuring a life that lives for the things of this world. Beloved, these two things stand opposed. When Christ comes, the wicked is cast out. And while there will always be that mystery of a mix for time to come, beloved in the Lord, the more we come to Christ, the more we look to Jesus, the more we see his goodness, the enemy will flee. Draw near to God and he will draw near to us. Resist the devil and he will flee. Beloved, may we see the victory of our Savior today, not merely for a future time, it is described as a future event, but as an encouragement for right now, to know that no matter what the opposition may be, no matter how great the enemy may appear, no matter how difficult the struggle, 
Christ is the king. And the victory is sure. Let us find our hope in him. Let us know the salvation that is found in him. Let us make it known for a world that is to be loved. A world that is to be loved, even in its rebellion, called to faith. Called to faith, even in its disregard for the king. The Lord's power may be shown in the saving of many sinners. The redemption of a bride that he indeed will fight for and he will win the battle for. And may God grant us to know that we are part of that bride. And by God's grace, we stand victorious in him. Let's join together in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and we pray, will you grant us your mercy and help and grace? We pray, Lord, that you would give us forgiveness for our sins, for the ways in which, Lord, we draw near to you, and yet we hold on to sin. The ways in which we may not think seriously about the reality of heaven and hell, or the eternal destination of those who may be around us. May we plead with you, as Moses pleaded for Israel. Lord, you will indeed redeem your children. You will save those you have set aside from before the foundation of the world. And we pray, Lord, you will do so in great numbers for your glory and honor. Uh, Father, we pray that you will uh, grant us courage not to grow weary in facing the enemy, to know that his days are numbered. Lord, one day our Savior will appear and the battle will simply be over. Will you hasten that day, we pray. And teach us to pray as the saints did at the end of the book. Maranatha, O Lord, come. Thank you for hearing our prayers. We watch over us as your church lead us in what is good and true and holy. And may your name be praised among us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.